Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We never really know we're living through history as it's happening. For example, if we're trying to assess what happened in a particular decade, we really can't do it justice if we attempt to analyze things day by day. You need a break. You need a little time for things to settle into place when it comes to, you know, the grand scheme of things. Take the 1960s, for example. This sounds a bit weird at first, but the 60s did not end when the calendar flipped over to January 1st, 1970. Decades have momentum, sometimes a hangover, that carries things forward for a year or two or even three afterwards. For example, the 1950s carried on until probably 1963. It took the assassination of JFK to really kick off the new decade. Historians have made convincing arguments that the 60s didn't end until 1972-ish. The 70s may have ended relatively on time brought about by things like the death of disco, a terrible recession, the election of Ronald Reagan, and other markers that said the me decade of the 1970s were done. I'd say that the 1980s ended by the end of 1991, thanks to the first Gulf War, another awful recession, and a wholesale sea change in music as we quickly transitioned from a world awash in hair metal to the new alternative generation. I'd put the end of the 1990s in 2001. Buried by 9-11 and the retaliation that followed, the rise of the internet, the bursting of the dot-com bubble, and the end of the traditional music industry, plus the introduction of the iPod, that basically says end of 90s, beginning of the aughts. Well, what about the aughts? Well, that's another decade that I kind of feel ended on time. So much came to a screaming halt with the financial crisis, the Great Recession of 2008, And by the time the clouds parted, we were done with that decade. This leaves us at the dawn of the 2010s, which was one of the few decades that started right on time. And for the next 10 years, we saw everything from prosperous economic growth to the rise of authoritarianism. And technology? Wow, I mean, the the 2010s saw more people get into tech and gadgets than at any time in history. Smartphones, the explosion of social media, cord cutting. Which brings me to music. When we look back on that decade, the 2010s, what happened? What did we learn? And how were trends and styles and consumption different than earlier decades? This is a big project. Let's find out. This is the history of the 2010s, part one. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Hi there, I'm Alan Cross, and this is the first episode in a series of programs that will go along with all the other series that deal with the history of alt-rock in specific decades. If you go back into our podcast library, you'll find deep dives into the 90s, the aughts, and several other long-form projects that went all the way back to the birth of rock and roll in the 1950s. This series will bring us up to date as far as decades are concerned. And for the next five programs, we're going to try to summarize everything that happened with rock 
between the beginning of 2010 and we'll call it the end of 2019. As the decade began, this song was the number one alt-rock track in the world. It had been this way since mid-October of 2009. From The Resistance, this is Muse and Uprising. One of the biggest singles of Muse's career. But as the decade of the 2010s began, there were more loud proclamations that rock was dead. Now, this wasn't anything new. Rock had been declared dead in 1957, when Elvis went into the army. In 1970, when the Beatles broke up. 1977, the rise of disco and, paradoxically, the birth of punk. The early 80s, dawn of synthesizer bands, guitars were done. 1989, claims that rock had run its course. And in 1997, boy bands and girl singers, and more boy bands and girl singers, plus the rising popularity of hip-hop. In each case, the naysayers were proven wrong, because no sooner was rock considered dead than something happened somewhere that spawned a rebirth and rock roared back bigger and louder than ever. Needless to say, rock did not die in the 2010s, but it didn't exactly roar back either. So what was going on? Maybe this is a good time to revisit the theory of the 12-year rock and pop cycle. Since the 1950s, we've been able to track the rise and fall in the popularity of rock versus pop, as rock is on the ascendant with the general public, a climb that lasts around six years. The popularity of mainstream pop music is on the descendant, a decline that also lasts around six years. Thanks to various demographic and cultural forces, once rock reaches a peak, new ideas begin to become exhausted, and the generation that pushed rock to the top ages out of their prime music years, and the scene's overall popularity begins to decline for the next six or so years. Meanwhile, pop, which had bottomed out as rock had peaked, becomes more popular thanks to the same cultural and demographic forces. And just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, let's look at the 1990s. At the very beginning of the decade, pop music ruled Michael Jackson, Janet Jackson, Madonna, Millie Vanilli, New Kids on the Block. Rock was dominated by hair metal bands, which was really starting to get old and played out. It was also dominated by older acts that were defining a new term, classic rock, Rolling Stones, Pink Floyd, Elton John, and so on. Rock is dead, they say. But then a number of events conspired to sour the public's mood on happy-go-lucky pop and the excess of hair metal. 1990 saw a terrible recession. There was the first Gulf War, and a new generation of music fans, Generation X, was coming of age. Like every other generational wave before them, Gen Xers wanted their own music, something that reflected their feelings, their wants, their desires, attitudes and fears and anger. Rumbles began in 1990, but it was in 1991 that things really pivoted. In about nine months, the old guard and the pop cohort were cleared out by the rise of grunge and alternative music culture. This music enjoyed dominance until about mid-1996, and then things went into decline. Gen X grew up and moved on. The artists that defined the early 90s either disappeared or lost their momentum. The economy improved, so the dour sounds of grunge no longer resonated as much. And the next generation, Gen Y, grew into their musical coming-of-age years. And they wanted to dance to happy pop songs. It began with the Spice Girls, but within a few years, the biggest popular music stars in the world were a bunch of boy bands and singers like Britney Spears. So, like I said, rock was dead. 
But then the cycle repeated. Pop was absolutely huge until about 2001, before world events conspired to turn things around. After 9-11 and the American invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan, happy music no longer seemed appropriate. Rock's popularity began to rise again, driven by an indie rock revival. I don't think the Strokes and the Yeah and the White Stripes and the Killers. And a return of some bigger, older acts. U2, Nine Inch Nails, Green Day, Weezer. Rock rode away for the next five or six years. And then came the financial crisis of 2008 and everything reversed again. But this time, things were different. Instead of just rock and pop battling out, a third genre was starting to drive culture. And that was hip-hop. It had been growing in popularity since the early 1990s. And by 2010, the genre had become the main cultural driver when it came to music, at least in the U.S., Rock was still bigger in some territories, but it wasn't as big as before. Hip-hop was a powerful, unstoppable force and would only get bigger and stronger throughout the decade. And there was a fourth genre competing for attention, EDM and its superstar DJs and massive public events. For many, electronic dance music was the new rock and roll. The big heroes weren't dudes with guitars, they were people with laptops. Swedish House Mafia, David Guetta, Deadmau5, Avicii, Calvin Harris, Skrillex. Tens of thousands of people attended their gigs in countries all over the world. If the 12-year cycle were to hold, which last peaked in about 2005-2006, it should have bottomed out by 2011 or 2012, and you can make the argument that it certainly did, swamped by not only a rise in pop music, you know, Maroon 5, Justin Bieber, Rihanna, Pink, Katy Perry, Carly Rae Jepsen, Adele, but also by the increasing strength of hip-hop and the big beats and bass lines of EDM. Again, no problem, cycle of life, right? Something would come along and turn things around in a couple of years. Demographics and world events would come to the rescue yet again. Now, I made a prediction that rock would again become dominant following the election of Donald Trump in 2016. Usually, whenever there's a Republican in the White House, and the more polarizing and controversial, the better, young people have traditionally responded to that, to that political and social circumstance, with a lot more loud, angry rock. We saw it with Richard Nixon in 1968. We saw it with Ronald Reagan in 1981. We saw it with George H.W. Bush in 1991, and we saw it with George W. Bush in 2001. Donald Trump was arguably more polarizing than all of his predecessors. So youth, we're going to fight back with rock. Weirdly, though, it never happened, at least not to the extent rock music had responded in the past. The explosion in rock post-Trump never really came. There were, however, some isolated examples, like Greta Van Fleet. This is from 2017. When we come back, we'll continue to look at other factors in the 2010s that brought about the end of the 12-year pop and rock cycle. I don't think I'm saying anything controversial when I say that rock struggled through much of the 2010s. And when I say struggled, I'm not judging on the quality of music. I, I, I'm saying that it was tough for rock to attract the same cultural attention as it had in previous decades because of the fierce competition from pop, 
hip-hop, and EDM. So why did the 12-year cycle break down in this particular decade? I have a couple of theories. First of all, the role of streaming music services and the erosion of the old ways of consuming music. The first modern streaming service was Listen.com, which appeared in 1999. It changed its name to Rhapsody in 2001 and is now known as Napster. But this is a completely legitimate and legal Napster, unlike the original. Amazon started streaming music in the fall of 2007. Around that same time, Deezer, a French streamer, Cubuzz, another French company, Grooveshark, Songza, and more than a dozen other companies appeared. Spotify was founded in 2006 and began going online country by country in 2008. It came to the U.S. in July of 2011 and Canada in 2014. And then Apple Music went online in June 2015. Streaming was cheaper than buying downloads and far more convenient than traveling through time and space to buy your music on a piece of plastic. And by the time we get to the middle of the decade, it was obvious where the future of music consumption lay. However, not every type of music fan jumped into streaming. For most of the decade, country fans stayed away, preferring to buy CDs. Rock fans as well were slow to adopt streaming in a big way, sticking with CDs and vinyl. Why? Not entirely sure. But pop and hip-hop fans were all over this new technology. So here's my theory. When streaming took off, we were firmly in an era when pop and hip-hop ruled, pushed forward by late millennial music fans plus members of Gen Z. They quickly gravitated from CDs to streaming and became the technology's biggest users. This further increased the attention on pop and hip-hop artists. Record companies took notice too. Streaming, not physical sales, was where all the action was and was where all the money was. What was hot? Pop and hip-hop. So labels poured more money into those genres. If there was any marketing and promotional dollars left, well, then it could go to rock or country. This created a circle of success for pop and hip-hop. The more people streamed this music, the more labels invested in those genres, leading to more people streaming more pop and hip-hop. And the algorithms took notice and began to recommend listeners more of what they seemed to like, which was more pop and hip-hop. Meanwhile, rock and country got far less marketing and promotional attention than they used to, contributing to their struggle. And because rock songs didn't get streamed much, they were tamped down by the algorithms. As a result, the pop share of what was a 12-year cycle was extended beyond the usual five or six years, breaking the cycle's decades-long rhythm. In fact, streaming turned this into a pop and hip-hop world. Rock wasn't dead, but because the first generation of streamers who were mostly pop and hip-hop fans, were focused elsewhere for longer than previous generations, rock never really got a chance to regain traction like it had in the past. Now, this isn't to say that some rock bands didn't have success with streaming. Of course they did. There was the Lumineers, Lord, Imagine Dragons, Coldplay, Mumford & Sons. They all had songs that streamed hundreds of millions, and in some cases, billions of times through the decade. But these artists and songs all had one thing in mind. Their sounds leaned more towards the pop end of rock, like 21 Pilots. There's a second part to my theory on why the 12-year rock and pop cycle broke down in the 2010s, and it's also related to streaming. For decades and decades and decades, music had to go through a series of cultural gatekeepers, record labels, record stores, radio stations, print media. In the 80s, we added video music channels to that list. 
These entities filtered through all the music that was out there. They vetted it for quality and commercial viability and only let the strongest stuff through. And that went a long way to creating a generalized consensus amongst the public about what songs and artists were good and worth listening to. And while we didn't all listen to the same thing, we were more often than not on the same page than we weren't. We at least knew what everybody else was listening to. Music had a series of large and powerful gravitational centers that anchored everything. Streaming changed that. Because we now have access to tens and tens of millions of songs, whenever we want, for free, or something very close to it, we've all become cultural gatekeepers for an audience of one, ourselves. No one can tell us what we should listen to. No one can force us to listen to something we don't like. The result is that except for a thin layer of superstar artists, most of whom are of the pop and hip-hop variety, everyone is listening to different stuff certainly in a way that we didn't back in the 20th century. The gravity wells of popular material that suck everyone in are much less powerful than they were in the past. Trends and fads come and go much quicker, and both songs and artists seem to be burning out much faster. As music consumption evolved and the pace of change accelerated, there was no way for the 12-year cycle to hold. Rock wasn't dead. It's just that unless you had a history that predated streaming, it was a challenge for new rock bands to break through. But even for a band like the Foo Fighters, one of the biggest rock acts of the last 30 years, they weren't superstars at streaming. By the time the decade ended, this was the most streamed Foo Fighters song with around 350 million listens. Compare that to Ed Sheeran's Shape of You, which was streamed 2.4 billion times. Here's part three of my theory that explains the breakdown of the 12-year pop and rock cycle in the 2010s. There's just too much music. Every day, the streaming music services add more music. As I'm sitting here doing this, each of the platforms has access to somewhere around 110 million songs. That's approaching the totality of every song ever recorded. And it's not just music from the West. The world has flattened out. K-pop is massive. One genre that saw major growth in the decade was Bollywood songs from India. Plus, there's been an explosion in interest in Latin music all over the world. Now, compare that to the olden days, when even the biggest record store would stock maybe 100,000 titles. And unlike back then, access to all of today's music is instant and essentially free. As more music became available online, we began to cycle through more songs more quickly. If we don't immediately recognize or like something, there's the skip button. In 2016, it was revealed that 24% of Spotify listeners will skip a song in the first five seconds if they don't recognize it or decide they don't like it. Another 29% will skip it within 10 seconds, and 34% will be gone by the time the song is 30 seconds old. The skip button and the bottomless library of available music has shortened our attention spans. It might have even increased our anxiety. Yeah, you know, this song is good, but what if there's something better out there? What am I missing? Better start burning through music so I can find that, that elusive song. And of course, we never do. For many people, streaming is just organized noise. It's, it's pleasant noise, 
but it still often just goes in one ear and out the other. With no CD or vinyl cover for reference, people know less about songs. They know less about albums and artists and producers and recording studios and music scenes and the stories that go along with them. It's delivered without context. And a lack of context can dull the meaning of music. Add to that the fact that virtually anything we want to listen to comes with zero cost. The emotional attachment we have to specific performers may be less than what we experienced in the past. And we certainly don't feel the same financial investment as someone who used to spend hundreds of dollars a year on records and CDs. All this contributes to a comparative lack of consensus about what's worth listening to. And I think that's contributed greatly to rock's inability to rebound from its lows of the last 12-year cycle. Again, there were exceptions. Royal Blood, very much a guitar-based band with an edge. Mike Kerr and Ben Thatcher found their footing in late 2012, and they managed to figure things out. A few more theories about why rock struggled in the 2010s coming up. This is part one of a multi-show review of what happened with rock music in the 2010s. Enough time has passed since the end of the decade for us to make some sense of the state of music over those 10 years. We've established that the 12-year rock and pop cycle was broken up by technology, mainly the ability to stream all the music we want, and just the music we want, whenever we wanted to. And I've got a few more theories as to why rock did not rebound to its previous highs in popular culture. Again, this is absolutely no reflection on the quality of the music. It's all about how rock no longer drives the cultural agenda like it used to for decades. Another thought. The recorded music industry has done a terrible job of creating new superstar acts since the beginning of the century. Before 2000, there were dozens of rock acts that could easily fill arenas and a not insignificant number that could fill a stadium. With the breakdown of the old recorded music industry models, that is, selling physical music with big margins and thus big profits, the industry is burning through artists a lot faster than in the past. There's been a bigger emphasis on individual songs and where they fit on a Spotify playlist than there is for an album that might be promoted over two or three or even four years. This ties in with my there's too much music theory. It became about individual songs. You have a hit? Great. Got another one just as big? Nope. Next. No, excuse me, get, get out of the way. There are 10 million other songs behind you. Consider the days of old, when a band like U2 was allowed to develop and mature over four albums. R.E.M.'s label were patient enough to wait five albums before a breakthrough. And think how long it took the White Stripes to rise to mainstream success. Fewer and fewer acts benefit from this kind of nurturing. And to be fair, it's not just rock acts. All genres are affected by the accelerated wham-bam-thank-you-ma'am speed of music. It's all going by so fast that it's getting harder and harder for new acts and new sounds to take root. Again, there are exceptions. Jack White, one of the few acts to emerge since 2000, who is capable of reliably being able to fill an arena or amphitheater, and to have substantial success distributing a song through streaming and physical media. This is from 2014.
I need to add another thing to the there's too much music pile. With more than 110 million songs in the streaming music service library, there is no way that anyone can get through everything. In fact, there's a huge number of songs that no one is getting through at all. On Spotify alone, it's estimated that 20% of the songs in the library have not been streamed by anyone even once. If the total number of songs is 110 million, that means over 20 million have never been heard. If you want to have some fun and you have a Spotify account, connect it to a site called Forgotify, and you'll be treated to a stream of music that no one has ever chosen to play before. I've done it. It's a fascinating exercise in lost music. Now think about that for a moment. There's 20, 22 million songs that no one has ever heard. <laughs> what are we missing? What has slipped through the cracks? Is the next great leap in rock lost in that pile? We'll never know. Radiohead is one of the few bands who are able to call their own shots in the online world. In 2011, they made their King of Limbs album available exclusively on their website. And even when they released physical copies two months later, it still sold and reached as high as number three on the Billboard album charts. I have one more thought about rock in the 2010s, and I um, I kind of hesitate to even bring it up because, well, here I go. Did rock struggle for attention in the 2010s because fewer people are interested in making it? As the decade began, there was an alarming drop in the sales of electric guitars. A report in the Washington Post in 2017 pointed out that the number of electric guitars sold in the U.S. had dropped by a third to around a million per year. Two major manufacturers, Gibson and Fender, were deep in debt. Guitar Center, America's biggest chain retailer of musical instruments in the U.S., ended up having to file for bankruptcy in 2020. Did rock hit a plateau in the 2010s because fewer young people were interested in picking up an electric guitar? Less new blood, fewer new ideas. Learning to play a traditional instrument like the guitar or keyboards or drums or whatever takes time and dedication. It may take years to get good enough. Now, though, there are all sorts of electronic instruments and computer programs that make it easy to create music. Ableton Live, preloaded sounds on something like GarageBand, the ability to buy beats and backing tracks online. Heck, you can make some pretty sophisticated stuff by using an app on your phone. And if you did get a band together, would there be any place for you to play live where you could work out your sound? Many, many independent live music venues closed during the 2010s because owners were unable to make enough money to keep the lights on, squeezed out by higher rents, or became victims of gentrification. There was some good news, though. Towards the end of the decade, sales of electric guitars picked up, and there seemed to be a slight uptick in guitar-based rock. Rock is dead, they say. But is it? How many times has someone said that? And why wouldn't they be wrong again? Here's a band that was formed in 2011 and just kept getting bigger as the decade wore on. It's The Interrupters. On the next edition of the History of the 2010s, we're going to look at how indie bands drove so much of the sound and feel of the decade. 
Major label acts were important too, but without the smaller labels and the do-it-yourself acts, the 2010s would have sounded much, much different. Podcast galore for me on any podcast platform. Just search for Ongoing History and you'll find hundreds of them. They're all free too. Binge as much as you want. I'm also available through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, threads. There's my website, a ajournalofmusicalthings.com, which is updated every single day. There's a free newsletter summarizing things every single day. And all input can be directed to alan at alancross.ca. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.